My name is Dean. I'm the family ministry pastor here. And if you couldn't tell, I had the privilege of going with those middle school students last weekend to Cascades Camp for Thunder. It was an absolute blast. We had a great time. Um, raise your hand if you went, middle school students, a couple of you, some over here in the front. Uh, where's Gary? Gary's that right there. Gary went. It was an awesome time. Joanna, it was a fantastic weekend. I was very much reminded of when I had worked at camp before. Lots of great things, of course, about camp, but one thing that gets woven through the whole camp experience is that all the staff get names, right? Everybody gets a camp name when you're at camp, and it can be a really funny process to watch unfold, especially because sometimes the name is rather ironic, like the guy who's six foot three, burly, he's always talking about hunting in the woods and just surviving out there in the wilderness, and they call him Cuddles. See, my name was not ironic at all. It was very fitting. It was Jukebox. Apparently, I sing a lot, often loudly, and especially at camp. When you're not at camp, of course, there's an entirely different kind of nickname, right? Not done because everyone's in on the joke, not done because you chose it, but because somebody is just trying to be mean, right? It's what bullies do on the playground or now what just kind of happens all over Twitter. But see, then it's not fun in games because someone's trying to tell another person who they are. See, when you're, when you're naming somebody in that way, you're trying to tell somebody something about their identity. In the last month, we've uh, been looking at the book of Daniel and this issue, um, but first, I'm going to say, kids, we love you, and we're going to dismiss you now. God, thank you so much for our kids. We thank you for their energy and life here among us, and we um, love you and praise you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. In the book of Daniel, um, we have been the last few weeks, I uh, apologize for that, um, and this identity of, this issue of identity is kind of woven throughout the whole book. It begins, of course, with Daniel and his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah being given new names by the Babylonians who have taken them captive along with thousands of others. And their Hebrew names meant things like, God is my judge, God is my help, God has been gracious. But the new names are these kind of strange attempts to tie them to a Babylonian god. Like, servant of Nabu is one of the meanings of those new names, almost kind of priming the pump for idol worship. And the naming process doesn't seem to be something they really have any control over any more than they could control having their homes destroyed, any more than they could control being captured and brought all the way over to Babylon. But Daniel and his friends do still have the choice to declare their true identity, even though, as we're going to see today, it means risking their life. They can either join in with the Babylonians, worshiping all sorts of gods, or they can continue to worship and trust in God alone. But before we go on, it's important to remember that neither Daniel nor any of his friends are the center of this story. In fact, in Daniel 3, we don't know where Daniel is. Daniel is not mentioned once, and no one really knows why. Scholars have no idea where he is. Maybe Daniel's in another part of Babylon or something, and so he's not really affected by the story. But it doesn't really matter where Daniel is because God is the center of this story. 
God is the one that Daniel and his friends always point to and give all the praise and glory back to, no matter what is happening. See, knowing who they are and that they belong to God means they act with confidence, but not with arrogance, in humility. They don't need to be the center of attention. And last week we looked at Daniel 2, which is about a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has about a massive statue, and it's made of all different kinds of materials, and God gives Daniel the interpretation of this dream to tell Nebuchadnezzar. And he says that the head of the statue represents Babylon, and all these different kinds of materials represents different kingdoms, and so this golden head is supposed to be Babylon. Well, you notice in the book of Daniel, if you've read all the way through, the king doesn't really understand the importance much of what is happening all along the way. He's often amazed. Sometimes he will tell people to respect the God of Daniel, um, but he also makes strange choices. So, to follow up chapter 2, after being astonished by the interpretation of this whole dream, he does this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That would have been about probably 90 feet high and about 9 feet wide. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. The king's dream was not a license to go and build a statue like the one in his dream and then demand everyone bow down to it with a newfound sense of arrogance because after all, I mean, Babylon, right? We were the head, the head of gold. So we're kind of like the coolest nation ever. So we should make a big statue about it, right? That's what we're supposed to do. But I mean, you know, massive ego. What are you going to do? The text doesn't say what the statue was exactly. It doesn't say if it was a a person. It doesn't say if it was of a god or an animal. It just says it was a really big statue. But you really get the hint that regardless of whatever it looked like, It really was all about King Nebi. Can I call him that since we're doing nicknames? Nebuchadnezzar is a bit of a mouthful. I'm just going to call him King Nebi from now on. This obviously presents a big issue for the Jews who have been taken into captivity. Idol worship wasn't just a problem. It was the problem. In the book of Exodus, when the Hebrews have been rescued by God from Egypt and Moses is on the mountain with God receiving the details of of this covenant, this brand new relationship they're entering into between God and his people, the rest of Israel is demanding that Aaron make a golden calf as an idol to worship. I mean, this is like day one and it's already happening. It's one of the many times they turn away from God. It's what keeps them out of the promised land for 40 years. When Israel finally comes into the promised land, they are tempted again to worship the false gods of everyone around them. And they give in to this temptation, to worshiping all sorts of gods, which leads them into all sorts of horrible acts against one another. And despite a few good kings, 
The most common thing you read about any king in Israel or Judah's history is they did not walk in the ways of the Lord. But it's not just the kings, it's the common people. It's even the priests, everyone. Isaiah says it this way, Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. The way the history reads in 1st and 2nd Samuel and then 1st and 2nd Kings, you see this slow movement to just blend in with the cultures around them. Where they still worshiped God, they still kind of came to the temple and did sacrifices, but they were also worshiping all these other gods because why not? They're cool too. And prophet after prophet warns about this, and it's the reason why Judah and Israel eventually are then in exile. It's why Daniel and his friends and so many others are there in Babylon in the first place. And now, once again, idols are being set up. There would obviously have been idols in Babylon before. That's no question. But now there's this threat of death. It is a death penalty to not bow down to this statue. Some Christians around the world are facing these kinds of situations, maybe right now at this exact moment. But most of us have never had to deal with a choice like that, right? With our lives literally hanging in the balance because of our faith. There may be times when somebody mocks you or ignores you or excludes you or belittles you for faith in God, but not like this. But while we don't face the penalty of death and even the idea of worshiping idols today doesn't involve the physical act of bowing down, we are surrounded by idols seeking our worship. You could certainly list technology as one of those idols since we do love to pat ourselves in the back in uh, modern society for all the things that we've created. But technology has also given so much easy access to lots of things on a moment-to-moment basis, all of it trying to gain our worship. This could be companies, it could be celebrities, it could be people in the media, politicians, sports teams, and so many more. Everyone wants the attention and fame, often because that also leads to more money and more power. And the easiest way to get that today seems to be doing or saying the most outrageous and extreme things just to get the attention. But it works, right? It works. People bow down until, of course, they're bored, and then they find another video, or they find another God. They bow down to something else. So to be a follower of Jesus today and to seek God's kingdom means to be aware of the possible intentions of others. Even people we seek to emulate or admire or imitate because they may just try and... ...selves. As Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Ooh. Now here we are. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I'm just going to say something real quick. I had no idea I was not on a microphone. 
Did anybody else know I wasn't on a microphone? Some people did. Some people had no idea. I'm just, again, jukebox. Okay. So, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. But there's another important thing to remember. It's very easy to identify somebody else's idol and to point that out. It can be very painful to admit to our own idol. Because where there is fear at work in our hearts, or anger, or jealousy, or pain, or loneliness, or a deep hunger for belonging and value and love, idols can seem very convincing in their arguments. And whatever worshiping that idol may look like, it will seem like a normal thing. Whether we like to admit it or not, we, church, we are all broken people. Filled with God's Spirit, yes, but imperfect. So we have all had fear. We have all had anger. We have all had pain in our hearts. In some seasons, we may feel that more than others, but that includes in our journey with Jesus. So yes, even in following Jesus, we can be targets for idol worship when we don't submit that pain and that anger and that fear to God. Probably doesn't look like an actual statue, There isn't bowing down on command. There isn't a blazing furnace or an orchestra to get our attention. I mean, look at all that stuff they list. I don't even know what a zither is. I don't even think Greg knows what the zither is. Sounds like a snake trying to move around in its sleep. That's it. Greg says that's it. But how many times do we try to fill the space in our hearts and mind and soul that only God can fill with some created thing? How many times do we offer praise to some created thing that only God should receive? Even the story here in Daniel 3 is not meant to lift up these young men on a pedestal to make them out to be perfect. This story is about God and God's faithfulness, even when things look dire. As the story moves on, some other royal officials then show up and report in verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, their their Jewish names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, there may have been other Jews who also didn't bow down, we don't know. But you can tell that these officials are really only concerned about these three because they're jealous. These three have been elevated to these level, this level of prominence in the kingdom. And these officials are jealous. And so they're brought in to the king's presence. The king, of course, who set up the statue, he's not having a good morning. He's furious and he says... Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. I kind of imagine it sort of looks like the Houston Astros logo. I'm just, never mind. Um, But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. 
then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This isn't really fair, is it? Not, not just the decree to bow down and worship this statue, but the fact that they're put in this incredibly difficult situation. Their life is on the line in a foreign country. They don't want to be there. All they want to do is be free to worship God without fear in their own homeland. And why is all this happening? Because many of those who came before them, generations past, long gone, had made mistakes again and again, and those same generations patted themselves on the back about all the religious festivals they observed while also worshiping false gods. Blind to what the prophets were saying, it says in Amos 5, this is God speaking, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps or zithers. That's not in there. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves." Whether you want to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. See, they didn't bring this on themselves. They're just stuck. The whole situation was generations in the making, and they are now dealing with those consequences. In the story in Daniel 3, it's obvious, of course, to see an idol like this massive statue, probably, most likely, a foreign god, set up in a foreign country and forced by a foreign king to bow down and worship under threat of death. It's easy to see all that and say, idol worship. I mean, it's plain as day. But what about all that idol worship that happened in Israel, maybe right outside the temple? Maybe the kings and the priests were doing it, so why not? In fact, oftentimes with even the best kings, it says, there's, there's a phrase that says, but they didn't tear down those idols, or they left up the altars over there on that hill. And now here in Daniel 3 is just one more idol, right? I mean, what's the harm? How much lower can we go? We're already in exile. Now there's a threat of death. Save ourselves, come on. See, in the book of Daniel, while on the surface you could contrast this small group of Jews and the rest of the you know, kingdom of Babylon, you could, but the reality is that these three young men, and Daniel as well in many places, obviously throughout the book of Daniel, they are also being contrasted with their own ancestors. They're going against centuries of culture, of idol worship that has stacked up despite the efforts of a few good kings. Idol worship that led to the very situation these young men are now faced with. To get to a point where they had the courage to say they would not bow down and worship this idol, they had to uproot a whole lot of things that were just normal for a long time. It wasn't just condemning the worship of any particular idol. These idols back in Israel, they had different names like Baal and Moloch and all kinds of things that make you want to spit. Um, but, but these other idols were, were just symptoms of a, another problem. The issue is what was behind all the idol worship? What were they chasing after? It's the same question we have to answer. 
So you could have lots of different specific idols people are tempted with depending on their own personal journey and struggles, but at the end of the day, all those idols could point back to, say, money. But money is not God. Fame is not God. Success is not God. Popularity is not God. The American dream is not God. Pleasure is not God. Could it even be that we have sometimes made an idol out of the church? Now, when I say the church, I don't mean the body of Christ. God's beloved children whom he has redeemed. I'm talking about the institution, maybe, of the church itself, or a particular form of church that we have lifted up on a pedestal and claimed it can do no wrong. Instead of always seeking the kingdom of God, we can make a human organization that may or may not reflect God's values be the center of everything, as though just keeping a religion going is the goal. And as long as that's happening, we're satisfied. Now, all the new people here today are saying, I don't think he wants us to become members here. I, I, don't, I don't think he wants us to stick around. Um, here's what I mean by this. See, the roots of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, comes out of Swedish immigrants. And they had been told by the Swedish state church for a very long time that faith meant memorizing a long list of creeds and then repeating them back. And if you can do that, not only have you got a great memory, you've got faith. And for a certain mindset about spirituality, that makes sense. That's kind of intriguing. I mean, here's the challenge. It's a very clearly defined box. It's extremely difficult. It's very overbearing and kind of awkward, but you know what to expect, right? It's kind of like what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. But the Jesus these Swedish Christians were reading about in the Bible showed them faith Faith was a vibrant relationship about trusting the God who created us and redeems us, not trusting in our ability to memorize enough theological statements. They realized faith wasn't about an institution being at the center and people being in control because it was God's kingdom all along and still is, not ours. See, an interesting thing about my genealogy is that I have a direct ancestor that came over on the Mayflower. Same last name, his name is George Sewell. And being able to trace my, interest, uh, my ancestry back that far and think about what it was like is, is kind of interesting, right? I mean, it, it was one of those things where, man, they really had to like go for it. They had to get out of England. They had to cross all the way over the Atlantic. That's a big deal. Man, come from some hardy stock there, right? They had to survive those winters. Um, my ancestors would have been present here for things also, though, that we'd probably rather not talk about. Things like the Salem witch trials that would have happened not very far away. Now, I don't know how far away my ancestors may have lived from Salem. Maybe some had moved there for those who lived in Plymouth. Uh, they would have been about 65 miles away. Now, obviously, back then, 65 miles is a little bit further than 65 miles is today. But maybe they heard about it. Maybe they got news where they were living, and when they did, were they disgusted by it? Did my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather fight against it? Did he approve of it? It's certainly not the only thing that happened in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but 
it became one of the more notable things because of the pain it caused. And make no mistake, to badly, badly misinterpret Scripture in God's will, there was idol worship here. Was the idol control? Was it power? Was it self-righteousness? Was it all of the above? I don't know. And did my ancestors know what was happening? I don't know. But I do know events like that one stacked on top of lots of other events, both big and small, things that seem like distant history and other more recent actions even of even ordinary people, some who are maybe well-meaning but misguided Christians, has all led to a, reputa- a reputation today that Christians can't seem to get away from. Jesus said we would be known by our love, but labels like simple-minded judgmental, angry, and a whole lot of other things are placed on Christians. Even if people today don't even think much about something like the Salem witch trials, and it's not fair that people who have gone before us make the decisions or made the decisions they made. It's unfair that we today could completely disapprove of those decisions and still deal with the consequences that have stacked up. But let's be honest, we've probably all made mistakes that misrepresented who Jesus is too. The lesson here in Daniel 3 is that God is working even when human mistakes are stacked a mile high, even when human mistakes seem to just keep going. God will not stop being faithful, even while we chase after other gods. It says in Daniel 3, again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to them, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These young men do not say that God is going to, no matter what, rescue them. They don't say that. They believe that God will, and they believe God certainly has the power to. They know God has the power to. But they do want the king to know that despite him feeling like he has all the power in this situation, that the power actually rests in God's hands. And they believe that God will rescue them. But even if God does not rescue them, they still won't bow down because they trust in the one and only God who is alone worthy to be worshipped and is stronger than death itself. See, this kind of response did not go over well. You can imagine it would not. So it says the king has the furnace heated so hot, the guards bringing them to the furnace are killed by the flames. Whoo! That's a scorcher. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi. Then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Because that's who they really were, right? Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were servants of the Most High God. Come out, come here. 
They came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. You know this was a miracle, especially because I have never walked away from a bonfire without smelling like one. How else are you going to make a s'more? You've got to get right up in there. It gets all in your hair. The wind's always blowing in your face. The question before us, probably more often than we realize, is are we willing to say, I believe God will rescue me from this, but even if he doesn't? Some of you may have been reading through the Immerse Bible with us this fall. We've been through Acts, among other books. And all throughout Acts, there are incredible, miraculous things happening, just like the book of Daniel. It can be tempting to us to either say those kind of things just aren't going to happen today, whatever we mean by those kinds of things, or we try to recreate the exact things we read about because wouldn't that be so cool? But the lesson is first, even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. Even if we don't get what we want, God is still the one who deserves the worship. And number two, we don't get to have some kind of lightning bolt power shooting out of our fingertips. God is the one who rescues, not us. But what if we were like these young men, humbly expectant of the things that God wants to do? Not just like philosophically open to it, but really truly seeking after what God had for us, the things only God can do. Now, let me be clear. I will not recommend or condone this as a recreational activity for anyone. Get that picture up there. Yeah, okay? No, 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 no. Not even if you pray first, okay? You can't be like, oh, well, Daniel 3 said it was okay. We're going to be fine. This is actually on someone's blog about a vacation I don't know. Wouldn't you just want to jump in a pool? Anyway, um, but what are things that God wants to do in us, in this community, in this church? What if we had real expectation, real prayer on our knees, asking for God to do what only God could do? See, it would start with being honest about our idols, even idols that have been passed down. It would happen because we also yield ourselves to God's plan, knowing that the outcome may not be what we had envisioned. And right now there may be already things going on in our life where we feel like we're walking through fire. The reason for that fire may have nothing to do with you. Sometimes it can be the consequences of our own actions, but Maybe it's nothing you did wrong, just like these three did nothing wrong but everything right. In the same way, they didn't survive this fire on their own. Maybe the fire is just a reminder of how much we need to trust Jesus. What everyone saw that astonished them so much was what they called um, the son of the gods. That's what uh, King Nebi saw. It's probably the only way they could have described it, being believers in many, many, many gods. But whether this was an angel like the ones we read about being sent to Mary or Joseph, what mattered was whose presence was really there with them, not the form. So this was not a son of the gods, plural, but the one protecting them was the son of the one and only God, the one who would do much more than help three guys survive an oven. 
The Son of the true God would one day give himself for us on the cross and conquer death itself and offer us forgiveness and reconciliation and hope far greater than we could ever have on our own. The Son of the one and only God would send the Holy Spirit to fill each of us right here and right now to be God's people called out of the world, to go back into the world and love the world with a holy creativity for how to address the pain in our community. If you remember from the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came on the first disciples at Pentecost and they said it looked like tongues of fire. Whatever furnace we're walking through right now, there is a much greater fire that fights for us and lives in us. If you feel like you're surrounded by fire today, Jesus is that greater fire, standing with you, walking with you. Expect Jesus will do something you could never have imagined or predicted or planned for. Expect Jesus will do something here in our church, through our church, that may not look anything like what we imagine right now. Because that, that, He and He alone, He is the God we serve. Let's pray. God, we thank you for stories like this. We thank you for the courage of men like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, who were put in unfair situations, bearing the consequences of generations before them, dealing with things that they should never have had to deal with, but they stayed faithful to you because you were with them and you gave them the strength to do it. And so God, in our weakness today, we pray that you would give us the strength that we need to continue to be faithful. To worship you and you alone, not only right here and right now in this time on Sunday morning, but as we go from here and as we are with our families and in our communities and with our friends and at our work and in our schools, God, we pray you would give us the courage to worship you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.